Welcome and thank you for coming. My name's Dawn Mason. My name's Tom Sowden. And I'm Jenny Rintel. <laughs> <laughs> we're all um, academics at the University of the West of England and we're all practitioners in our own field as well. So, uh, just to give you a brief outline of the talk that we're going to be giving today, we're going to start with the theory that underpins the research of the group. Um, we're then going to move on to a bit of the history behind the group, some of the previous group activities we've done, um, and then we're going to focus on the recent research that's exploring tacit knowledge. Um, and what we want to do at the end, we, we're anticipating this will take about 40 minutes, the talk, and then we want to have a discussion at the end as well around the latest research that we're doing, if you'd like to be involved. Cool, shall I start? Okay, yeah. so... So I'm just going to give a bit of an overview of the um, context to the ideas that have come out of the group um, uh, and the, some of the ideas that perhaps inform the group. And this is from definitely from my perspective, but I think is in line with the aims of the group. So um, what I'm interested in just highlighting then is this uh, backdrop of a constructed division between thinking and making. This is the backdrop against which this, the group's activities are existing, taking place. And that's uh, an artificial divide between making and thinking that has been historically set up as though thinking comes first and making follows, um, as though thinking is of the mind uh, and the higher orders, and as though making is bodily and subordinate. And this cultural construct is Western uh, in origin, and we can trace it through Descartes' 17th century writings about the division between mind um, and body. Um, so that Cartesian dualism, um, where the controlling mind dictates the, the receptive hand. And it also traces through socially constructed divisions of uh, labour, which Richard Sennett talks about in his book, The Craftsman, I've just put up there, bottom uh, right. And there's also a setting up here in this backdrop of the different value for thinking work and making work and that's different value according to financial reward as well. So this is all part of the backdrop that um, really matters because this sets a Western scene of binaries or dualisms. Um, I'd say it's a divide that lingers in our education system. So we might think of the threats to the arts and education at the moment um, and the perpetual view of the arts as soft subjects against the hard subjects. Um, and it also sets up the knowledges or the subjects um, that are seen as of most worth. And it's also a divide that lingers in the old cliché, the mythologising of the artist as visual over intellectual, as intuitive over logical. And this myth is set up as though, A, one cannot be both, one cannot be both visual and intellectual. 
the myth is set up as though, B, these terms are discrete, so where visuality and making equate something mystical and soft, um, while the intellectual equates something rational and hard. And thirdly, C, the myth is set up as though the intellectual is a potential threat to the authenticity of the visual and of making. And it's against all of this backdrop that uh, books such as Senates have come out, where he argues that making is thinking, um, and books such as Fortnum and Fisher's have come out. Um, and within that book at the top, there's um, a series of case studies that Fortnum and, Fortnum and Fisher have uh, put together, um, where they've worked with artists and practitioners on the idea of not knowing and the tacit knowledge, tacit knowledges within their practices. So the point of me telling you this then is to highlight that this attention to making and thinking as integrated, which is part of the remit of the group, and this attention to the knowledges that are embedded in practice and making isn't a new area of research or a new area of interest, but it is particularly pertinent at the moment with the rise of practice-based PhDs, where increasingly making is understood uh, as research, making is understood as thinking. And I think it's also particularly pertinent in the context of the current government changes in education that seem to fall back into that outmoded binary system. So from here, there are two points from, uh, that inform my interest in the group. Um, one is on the language of making. So connecting to the, the well-established idea that materials are not mute, that they have agency, so rather than merely being objects to be manipulated, um, materials and things impact upon us. Um, so they make us do things, they're not merely done to. So the example of the seat that you're sitting in, the kind of materials and the design of the seat impact upon the way that you uh, inhabit it, sit in it. And I've included on there, um, obviously, a, an image of Eva Hesse's work um, and a quote from Rosalind Krauss, obviously from the early 70s, from 1970, so partly to demonstrate the longevity of some of these ideas, but also because there are other points that we can think about in relation to materiality and materials and lifespan. Um, uh, and in the case of Eva Hess, the fact that she works with latex, which deteriorates over time, so the, works have a, the material has a bodily quality to it as well. So the point here then is that materials have lifespans, identities, characters, and voice. So that's the first point that I'm interested in. And the second point is about rethinking thinking itself. So the uh, idea that thinking is not constrained, the idea that thinking is not constrained in the abstract, but is instead embodied. Um, so in other words, thinking is not confined in the head as set up in that Cartesian dualism and in those outmoded binaries that we looked at in the last slide or a couple of slides ago. Um, but rather is something um, which is bodily and embodied. And Nelson talks about this um, a couple of years ago, um, and he talks about arts practices gesturing towards the articulation of thought. So I'm interested, or we're, we're interested in Nelson's term articulation, so the idea of pertaining to language, so positing art practice as a form of speech, arts practice as a form of communication, and significantly knowledge. So the point there is that arts practices have voice, they are not silent. In this way then, they're not, arts practices are not silent as in mute, um, however they have been historically silenced within the boundaries of what counts as valid knowledge. Um, so although this particular quote out of context might sound like Nelson might be pointing towards the idea that thought is articulated through practice, he's not saying that making, and that extends to um, creative practices in general, so dancing, playing music and so on, He's not saying that making is a direct translation of thinking. He, so he's not um, suggesting a top-down model in that sense, or a one-directional model. He's not suggesting anything that is in line with that Cartesian dualism. Um, Nelson instead is pointing towards a more two-way model of thinking and making, so where these elements are in conversation. So, and, but, um, often the thinking embedded in making emerging from making and in dialogue with making is unseen or rather unspoken, not codifiable, um, not easily identifiable. 
Rather, it is tacit and hidden. And this kind of thinking and knowledge appears semi-conscious or unconscious, so held in our bodies and heads carried with us. And we might think of that in uh, relation to materials handling with sculpture or um, composition in music or choreographing and uh, muscle memory in dance. So a question that might be useful to pose and perhaps discuss at the end if there's time is not only where thinking and tacit knowledge is located within making, but why its articulation might be useful and for whom. So that's my bit. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the backstory very quickly to the group. Um, in 2003, we established a group called ETC, which was Enamel, Textiles and Ceramics at the University of the West of England. Um, the group was set up to encourage applied art staff to work together in a research environment and to generate exhibitions. We were quite insistent that this group should be a research area pertinent to diverse practices and where other and high-caliber practitioners could be invited to participate. So we worked with um, people such as Robert Ebendorf, Elizabeth Turrell, Helen Karnak, Jessica Turrell, I'm going to read them off, Janet Stoyle, Dale Behenna, Basil Cardassius, Kate Malone, Diane Porter, Diane Porter, Hannah Reisgard, Carol Waller and Janet Haig. So we were concerned with making work rather than formally developing cr critique, arguing that this was explicit in the work itself. So we did different projects together around themes such as uh, spoons, brushes. The focus very much on play and collaboration and the unplanned conversations that happened in the studios as a point to reflect on individual practices. This developed into an offshoot of ETC called Stitching and Thinking that was um, formed by Janet Haig and myself, which again was a practice-based research group um, and again created as a platform for experienced pra practitioners to develop and question their skills using hand stitch as a kind of provocation to test their knowledge and skills base. So this is some of the work that we did, uh, it kicked off with a three-day workshop where different practitioners posed uh, short workshop-type activities for the members of the group to experience. So this slide here represents a workshop that was based around smells, and this is a representation in materials and processes based on the, on, uh, the smell of cloves. Um, we looked at how to add value to different materials. So this was just cardboard. How do, you, how do you give it value? How do you give work value? And we, uh, we talked about our work. So this is a slide of Serena Delahaye, who's made the big wicker man on the M5. That big piece of sculpture was actually stitched together with long bits of willow. So it's that sense of testing and pushing what definitions are and what processes will do. Out of that group, uh, at the end of that three-day workshop, we interviewed all the delegates, um, and what came out of that was an interest in mending as a philosophical and practical standpoint for the generation of work. And this led to the Mending at the Museum project, and we've got a slide here of uh, the exhibition Mending at the Museum, which was on for six months between 2012 and 2013. Um, and we used mended um, objects from the museum's collection to inform our work. Really, the big thing that came out of that, I think, is, is a question about the value of the work that was undertaken. So, as I said, these groups were based on the importance of play and collaboration. But for me, really, it was a sense of uh, the longevity and impact of some of that work that, that holds the, the real value for practice as, as you go forward. So this is, this is me doing stuff in that three-day Stitch and Think workshop, um, which 
morphed and generated into work that was shown at Stroud International Textiles Festival in 2012 and again at the Contemporary Applied Arts Gallery in 2013 and working in collaboration with uh, other practitioners at Manchester Met University. This work also now underpins one of the chapters in my own PhD, so it's that sense of making and thinking and the longevity of that and how it underpins work. So it seemed as a model of research, that sense of collaboration and working together through play, um, this model could have a great impact on individual and group output. So what occurred to me was the, the potential really of extending that and expanding that uh, and that led to the instigation of the Make and Think Research Group in 2013. So, currently the group is made up of 10 members. Uh, they're a mixture of academic and technical staff at the University of the West of England, but also professional practitioners as well. Um, the group tends to ebb and flow, members come, members go, but we have a core, and this is the current 10, uh, and this is the group, when we've been referring to the group throughout this, this is the group we're talking about now, it's the Make and Think Research Group. Um, and the group has a, a kind of a shared ethos. Um, quite early on in the formation of this group in 2013, we wrote a statement, which I'm going to read to you now, which I think sums up what we're approaching as a group. Through collaborative working methods, discussion and dissemination, the Make and Think group seeks to question and define what making is. The production of the physical object is important to group members, but capturing the journey through making is fundamental. The diverse members of the group will employ different models of making, individual, collaborative, considered, speculative, discuss and record the making process, then expand and present these monologues and dialogues to an engaged audience. So one of the uh, earliest uh, activities we did together as a group was based around the theme of light. Um, this was a workshop we conducted in 2014. We, as a group, we'd paired off and we were given as a pairing, we were given the subject of light and we had to come up with some kind of activity or process or, or something to share with the group that was based around that theme. So we had a series of making workshops. What we were also very keen on was having discussions as well um, and as many of us facilitate these these kind of sessions for students it was quite useful to be reminded of how this feels this discussion and critique around the work as you're doing it as well so the theme of light was approached in many different ways uh, the pairings used various different processes uh, some using non-typical materials i would say as well and different ways of approaching light um, and try to have a, quite a creative approach to it as well and presenting that back to the group. So this is an example of one of the experiments and a bit of the playing that we did as part of the group in that initial workshop. So you can see we, we, we've got a curiosity in what materials, we, um, what materials we'll do um, and we were looking at all kinds of materials related to light. So this was one we were looking at fuses, lighting those fuses, seeing how they marked the paper when they were trapped in that situation. This was something that really took my uh, attention as well. I was really interested. We were also shown how you can insert a fuse into a, a bowl of sugar, light it and as the fuse burns through the sugar it actually caramelizes it and crystallizes it around where that fuse was and you get other objects. So I was quite taken with this and I, I wanted to see if you could produce three-dimensional objects. So I started wrapping uh, wire around the fuse in order to create that three-dimensional object, submerged it in sugar, lit the fuse again, and then once it had burnt out, remove it, wash it in water, and then you get left with these um, quite beautiful three-dimensional objects, I think, underneath. There isn't any specific form to them at this point, but this is something I'm kind of interested in pursuing at a later date anyway. 
So other ways in which we use fuses, so that, again, it was containing them in, in certain vessels and, and seeing how they reacted because they, 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 are, they do become quite active when you light them. So containing them in a bottle and then putting them on the paper and seeing how that influenced the paper and, and the kind of marks that could be made. Similarly, using matches um, to mark the paper, to burn through the paper to see the marks that could be made. And also the wire wall. So when you uh, put a battery against the wire wall, it will start to smolder and burn and seeing how that influenced the paper. Um, just as an example as a, of another session that we did, we did the, uh, I was involved in a pairing that was interested in the containment of light. So we gave the group members a series of rudimentary materials and a series of different light sources, so from light bulbs to torches to LED lights to candles, um, to see how light could be contained, what would happen when you uh, surrounded the light with these materials. How did it reflect? How did it refract? How did it contain it all inside? So following on from that, the next, we kind of tend to do yearly projects. We're academics, we're, we've, we've, got, we've all got kind of full-time positions or, or we're um, practitioners, makers out in the, in the real world. So we tend to do kind of yearly, yearly projects. The next one that we did was around the theme Break, Make, um, and that resulted in uh, an exhibition. These are close-ups of or expanded shots, I should say, of the exhibition itself. We worked in pairs, so we were really trying to explore the idea of collaboration and how collaboration works from that initial theme. So uh, this slide here shows the work of myself and my partner, Matthew Partington. It was quite interesting how we all uh, generated different ideas to the work. So. For us, for Matthew and I, we were experiencing, what would I say, senior members of our families who were suffering from dementia and the impact that has on the family. And we took to walking around Matthew's allotment quite a lot. Um, and the way the vegetable beds and the allotment looked appeared as a visual metaphor for that sense of, sense of emptiness and fullness and things dying away and then re, you know, regrowing. So that sense of the passage of time as well and decay. Um, and this is some of the early work that, uh, well, that I made actually in response to that, which was paper and card uh, folded forms, which developed into these uh, two forms, so it's that sense of lightness and heaviness, things that float away or things that seem emotionally heavy. Matthew's response to those themes as well was that he found, uh, he was clearing out his father-in-law's house and found a photograph of his father-in-law and his father working in the garden um, and realised that the tools still existed so he was interested in the sense that memory and identity was held somewhere between the photograph and the tools themselves so he decided that the real value was in these tools and what he crafted was elm collars to hold the work on the wall the actual objects on the wall Um, my collaborative pairing was with Kieran Brown, um, and at this time we we had a series of discussions about what we wanted to do uh, for this um, this project, and we both spoke about our uh, shared youth growing up skateboarding, uh, and how we were particularly interested in the objects that we used to make as skateboarders that we would use to further our tricks. Um, and we had quite a discussion about whether we would construct more of these objects, whether we would try and engage with the skate community. Um, but actually what came out of it is we were particularly interested in the DIY skate community and particularly near to the Bower Ashton campus we have Festival Way, the cycle path there, which is used by skateboarders and they create a whole series of quite permanent structures that they use for skateboarding but then also these very uh, ephemeral structures that last hardly any time at all. And then we had a discussion about, do we want to be makers? Do we want to be designers? But actually we thought in this situation, we don't want to impose ourselves in this pre-existing community. We want to see if we can facilitate it in any way at all. So we uh, left a series of scrap materials in the space that the skateboarders use. And then we kept um, going back and checking on a daily basis to see and to see if it had been used in any way, shape or form. And thankfully it had in some way. 
Um, and we were really taken with these. They, you know, I think they're really beautiful sculptural objects in their own right. Uh, what I also love about them as well is, as you can see from this photograph, they're not going to last very long at all. As soon as any number of people have skated over them, they're going to start to disintegrate or they'll get broken up and used in different ways. But we were quite keen on that. So we did this a few times. We kept a record. Uh, we documented what was going on. We actually found a lot of the materials disappeared and we suspected that they'd gone into the allotments next door and they were being used by the allotment holders, which again was absolutely fine. It was quite nice to be facilitators in that sense. We just couldn't document anything that had happened with it because we couldn't get in there. And then we had a discussion about how we wanted to present this stuff in the exhibition and we decided that initially our idea was to bring some of these objects back into the gallery space, but we thought they, they would lose their... Um, their poignancy if they were taken outside of the environment that they were designed in. So what we presented was just a series of documentation on the process that we, we uh, used in order to be able to create or have created these, um, these objects. Um, Stephanie Worcester, another member of the group, uh, was working on her own in this um, uh, break-make exhibition and, and the, the theme of the, the, the project that we're working on. But the collaboration, I think, came through discussions. So we would regularly meet together as a group and we would input on each other's ideas. Um, so this is where the collaboration uh, really took place. And Stephanie was really looking at alternative ways of making seams in knitwear. Um, so she was looking at how you could create garments where the seams could be broken and then remade within the garment itself as you're using it. Uh, and these are some of the samples that she used. So there were, there were magnets inside there that you could alter the, the way in which they, those two bits of knitwear fitted together. Uh, Phil O'Shaughnessy and Sarah Barnes uh, collaboratively worked together and they worked on a process of allowing process to dictate the development of the content. So they, they, they embarked on a series of different playful experimentations and then with each one, it would then lead to the next object that was made. So they started with the blue foam. They used a hot wire in order to sculpt it. This was then cast in aluminium. Um, and they allowed things such as the risers that you use in the casting process, they allowed that to start to drive the work forward again. So it was very much it was the process was in control of the content. And then after doing that, they scanned it with a 3D scanner. And you can see the way in which it, the 3D scanner was starting to interpret those objects, change them again. So this is taking the work in another, into a new direction. Um, Jessica Turrell and Rebecca Goulston uh, work together uh, as a collabora collaborative pair. They are professional makers, um, and they were particularly interested not so much in making, but the decision-making behind the making process and making that visible. So they uh, ended up with this this incredibly detailed uh, kind of spider diagram in the exhibition at the end. Um, one, other, one other piece of work that was in the exhibition was a piece that I made myself. Um, this was, uh, for me, it's a collaboration with the objects and with the materials themselves. It's a continuation of an interest of mine that's been directing my practice for a very long time where I utilize pre-existing processes or objects or systems to try and produce new work. So this was a piece called Standard Lamp. I think what, what we proved to ourselves as a, as a group was that we could really work together uh, and what we were doing was really informing our own practices, both as collaborators but also as individuals as well. Um, and we really enjoyed the discussion and the decision making that went along with it, working together as a, as a group. So what we um, really wanted to do, we, we, we kind of discovered that the re real value lay in the interrogation of the making process rather than outcomes. So then the latest project that we've been working on is this one called Interrogating the Unspoken, uh, which was 
a one-day provocation workshop. Um, it was what we were trying to do is we were trying to identify the intuitive tacit knowledge of experienced designers and makers, um, and making those internal monologues and dialogues clear, and the skills that we have as designers and makers, and make those clear. So interrogating the unspoken was. Um, we gave everybody in the group a brief, and the brief was to work in pairs, and in those pairs to create an object that responds to the head as a design problem. The finished ob object should consider the head of both partners in terms of both size and movement. And the unspoken aspect of it was this had to be conducted in silence. So we had to collaborate as, as pairs, but in silence, or I should say, without speaking. Uh, so verbal or written language wasn't allowed, so we weren't allowed to communicate our ideas that way. We really had to communicate through drawing or through action, uh, charades in most cases, or through the making process itself and through the materials. Okay, so we've thrown in a, a few quotes as well that kind of contextualize what we're doing. So skills such as listening well, behaving tactfully, finding points of agreement and managing disagreement are dialogic skills. This is written by Richard Sennett, um, which is from the book that Jenny mentioned earlier. So that sense of what he's, what he's talking about is the actual act, I suppose, of communication. What we're interested in doing is applying these ideas to involve the materials as part of that conversation as well. <laughs> okay. So um, we had some aims uh, as part of interrogating the unspoken. They were to question how we use communication within the act of making, both in collaboration and with ourselves. To test whether communication within the creative process is verbal, visual, tactile, or a mixture of all of these. And to consider the potential for communication through materials and process. So the object objectives were to work in pairs without verbal communication. Um, as we saw it, collaborative working often uses speech to communicate whereas the common artistic practice of working individually in silence utilizes tacit knowledge. And working in pairs but in silence, we were trying to make that tacit knowledge more explicit. And more experienced by us, yes. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to record the workshop, so we recorded it through film and audio recording to allow for reflection as a group uh, and provide evidence of the processes and capture those fleeting realizations that are part of the creative process to identify the unspoken knowledge of designers and makers, um, the act of silent collaborative making and the opportunity to reflect upon it externalizes the internal creative experience. To relate our research to the art school teaching environment, which was quite important to us, um, to develop an andragogic model uh, to give students to access the depth and breadth of knowledge of experienced makers and to use accessible and democratic materials. Uh, this was quite important to us, yeah. I think, um, so that we weren't privileging a particular knowledge set. We were using um, materials that the participating group could all use, they all recognize, and it allowed for a speed of working without any kind of specialist uh, treatments or equipment. Mm. Mater the materials were really secondary to what we were trying to achieve, I think, weren't yeah. they? Just but also very important in yeah. the process yeah. as well. So these are some of the objects that were created during that first experiment. And here we've got a video of us working in silence or without speaking. was um, it felt in my head when we were doing this it felt really uh, noisy <laughs> actually it felt like there was a lot going on in the room and there mm. were conversations mm. happening 
but as you can see, it's completely silent. So it's not a static silence. Not a static it? silence. Yeah. It was full and rich. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So the visual arts are as much a crafting of silence as of the visible materials that we assume to be their media. So this is written by uh, John Biganet, who's a playwright and columnist, and he considers different and varying definitions for the use of silence. And he proposes silence as a material within the creative process and places importance on that. And I think we were very much playing with that idea within this workshop. <laughs> and this is where it got really funny and fun, actually. Yeah. So, sorry. I feel like I should speak for this one. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Phil and I had a bit of a crossover interest in, the, in space um, and the body in space. So that's with Phil's background as uh, an interior designer and his interior design practice, and then my background in dance. So that was our kind of crossover point, um, which then uh, manifested in the ways in which we use the materials and um, we thought, well, without speaking, we thought about the way that materials um, can impact the way that we experience the space. So that comes out. So we chose that idea of a design problem that relates to the head. The head is a design problem because what we realised it would give us um, an internal and an external form because what we were really trying to make visible is that sense of how do you get out what you're holding on the inside. So it seemed to be those forms had an internal space and an external space. So there was a really quite nice link between what we were trying to expose, yeah. I think. less said about this the better other than I would say actually the materials had a hand in this really um, yeah we'll move yeah we'll just move on so um, we must not try to make materials speak our language we must go with them to the point where others understand their language so this was written by Juliana Palasma um, one of Finland's distinguished architects and he explores the role of the body in developing a full understanding of the physical world and the human body as a knowing entity. So also redefining the task of art within this. And I think for all of us, that sense of uh, what, what language do materials speak? How do they aid and in, uh, inform the work that you're making? How, are, how, do, they, how do they speak to you? As a, as a practitioner, actually. And that was something we really, I think, explicitly experienced as part of that workshop. Um, so the morning session was made, work made in silence or without verbal communication. The afternoon, we could speak, um, and we refined, the idea was to refine the work or the ideas that we'd explored in the morning. So um, for Paul and I, this became very much about creating a palette of materials, a vocabulary of materials that were responding to uh, those objects that, that we made to wear in the morning. Um, 
And str strangely, the way we worked together changed. So in the morning, it felt very much as though um, it was a three-way conversation between myself, Paul, and the materials. And at certain times, I led. At certain times, Paul led. At certain times, the materials led. And that was all without verbal communication. It was, it was kind of a very instinctive and um, tacit, tacit way of working, actually. Um, and in the afternoon, when we were putting these together, we tended to work, we decided on what we were doing, and then we went into our own practices, our own ways of working again. Um, the collaboration came at the end where we had to make sense of how these worked as, as, a, as, a, as a vocabulary, as an alphabet, really. So, uh, Matthew and Sarah, you're probably best to talk about this. Yeah. yeah. Um, the way in which people responded to the brief was different according to the pairings and the way in which they, they approached it. So Matthew and Sarah, it was a very hot day that we were doing this. So immediately they hit upon the idea of how could they cool themselves down. So they worked through drawing initially and then into the object, uh, how could they work a fan-type hat that actually in itself didn't work. It didn't fan the, the head, um, but it created these beautiful objects. So in the afternoon when they were starting to refine those objects, this is how it went. The idea that they hit upon was actually really starting to expand these fans and to see how they could work around the head or work together. Um, Stephanie Worcester and myself, we, we tended to work just with paper, I think, in, in what we were producing. We were, um, I think it was Stephanie who started by started folding the paper, and I was in awe of her ability to fold the paper and to create these objects. So we just worked by working paper together to see what we could make. So in the morning we constructed this garment, this thing, that uh, surrounded both of our heads. Um, and I think what, what was interesting for us as a group as well when we were reflecting upon it is we'd removed one of the senses when we were doing this collaborative working and then what many of us were doing, we were also removing some of those senses with what we were producing as well. For many of them, vision is, is impaired or hearing. Um, so we were quite taken with that idea and that way of working. In the afternoon, then, we really started to refine the, the objects that we were making. Um, I, personally, I feel that the afternoon session didn't work as well as the morning session. I think when we were working in silence, we were really allowing the materials to, to lead. And each and that collaborative working, when you can't speak to one another, you, the compromise is less, I think. I think you just it's have really to keep moving forward. It's isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, yeah, you just do it. You just do it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you respond. So you allow each other to, to take the lead and to respond to it. Um, in the afternoon, I found that slightly less successful, and I think the, the term refining didn't quite work. Um, but these are some of the objects that Stephanie and I produced as well, including the, the one there that completely uh, shrouds the head and that we've used as the, the image for this talk. So... Uh, the final quote we want to use, so skills are an alternative to language and theory. This was written at a time when the crafts were really trying to form a kind of criti critical discourse. Yeah, the castration of skill, yeah. So when crafts were trying to form a critical discourse for themselves, and, and really I think this is quite a provocative statement that doesn't apply now but it, was a, a, it provided us with a really interesting discussion and debate, actually, about the value and the position of those three things, skills, language, and theory. overlap they're, they're not distinct from one another they very much work with each other and then this is where we place ourselves as a research group in the middle yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that's not good yeah <laughs> okay so I think I think that's where we are with the group what we did um, at the end of this uh, interrogating the unspoken workshop was we filmed uh, each member um, 
we were interviewed, we filmed each member, and it's what we feel is that there's a real um, value in that as a resource to allow students to have access to that knowledge, that sense of the skilled maker or the skilled artist, if you like, and engaging in practice and what that actually means and does. We tried it, didn't we, with some, uh, some students, some MA students, and I think the response to them or from them was, was very different. It was, um, we were really aware of how much more, what would I say, how am I explaining it? How we uh, engaged with the process very differently to the students, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. and, and, and we found it, I'm probably generalizing a bit too much, I think. I'm not going to say what I was going to say. Yeah, 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 I'm not. So I think one of the questions we've got is, does this have value? Is it, um, is it interesting? Is it something we should continue with? Does I think it, it's all, does, is does, it of interest, actually? Does it, does it even matter that we're yeah, trying to make matter? tacit knowledge clear? Yeah, maybe to go back to that question that we posed at the start, at the end of that contextualising section... Um, yeah, what's the, what is the value in being able to articulate that tacit knowledge, the knowledge that comes through maybe, is it important, why bother, uh, who is it for, is it something we should be trying to do, in what language should we articulate it? Yeah, can I throw that back to you? Yeah. That's it. Thank you. Yes, it does have value, I think. Um, I think making visible, I know, I know there's that kind of thing about process that you talked about, but actually making visible and using the language of play and chance in the creative process is a really brave thing to, brave, not in a kind of um, patronizing well, way, but it's, a brave, it's yeah. a brave thing to do in the current context where the um, emphasis is on transferable skills and the kind of perfect saleable outcome. So to make visible the role of kind of play and chance and interaction. And again, to have, have done that without showing your own practices in their perfection, because you have mentioned the fact that everybody involved are practitioners and professionals in their disciplines. And I'm not saying that doesn't come across in the images. I would never suggest that. But what, what comes across is that kind of experimentalism and that, and that freedom. So I think... Personally, as both an educator and writer and whatever else around that, I think there's a really, really important political, with a small P, but also a big P, you know, stance to take in making the evolution, uh, you know, and the role of, yeah, chance visible in the creative process, mm. given the importance of the creative industries in the UK and in Bristol in particular. So there wasn't a question. I'm just saying yes. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Connects in with like the discourse about failure as well, yes. um, which maybe um, students can sort of sympathise with. And that idea, you know, in order to fail, there has to be a standard against which you are failing. Um, yeah, and the value of that in relation to those ideas of play and chance. Yeah. Oh, sorry. There's two. There's one at the back and then one in the middle, just there. Hi, um, yeah, I just wanted to say, um, it's, it, this talk's helped me quite a lot because I often feel quite, uh, not, not guilty is the wrong word, but when I'm kind of constructing like a costume or something, um, I often think, oh no, I've got to have like a drawing, I've got to have a, a thing, but really I actually, when I'm faced with materials that I find on the street or I just scavenge from places or have accumulated over the years, they then inform what I make. And so, yeah, I've just found it, I found it quite interesting because then I'll be like, oh, um, you know, where's this going? I'll get a bit stuck and then I'll introduce another material into the mix and then it kind of changes it and then I kind of like 
sketch through making. But um, yeah, so that's why I came to talk because I found it. it so have you, have you found well that reassuring? Hmm? Have you found that reassuring yeah. that we've shown that that sense of it is part of creative practice? Because yeah, I think on on the day we all had slightly different approaches because obviously we hadn't discussed beforehand where we would start. So some people started with drawing, mm. some people went straight to the materials. Mm. So that that was quite an interesting um, balance, I think, for people, because uh, my partner, I think I, I think I forced him into a way of working that he probably wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't his usual route through. So I think for, for all of us, there was a kind of challenge and then a reconfirmation of our own approaches. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with the failure thing as well, it's like you, I often, a lot of the best stuff I come across is when I've kind of, it's just, you know, happened by accident or something's gone a bit wrong and then I'm like, oh, actually, I quite like what that is and then I push that into a different way and then, yeah, like kind of embracing the failure. And of course, this is all part of the process that when you go to a gallery and see an artwork, you don't actually necessarily see, so it's thinking about a space to articulate that as well. We've got microphone at the back. Um, I'm just wondering about the, the next step. So you spent a day, we had a morning and an afternoon, yeah. um, and then the, the process of destroying the work or unpicking the work or what would happen in, in the next phase, whether you would work towards more, a more destructive phase or um, you know, there's that sort of element of creative yeah. destruction or chaos yeah, that could then be yeah. incorporated into that, that next I think at the moment we, I think we felt we're quite insular as a group. We we haven't really expanded it out beyond the members of the group. So I think before we go down that route, I think what we're aiming to do is to roll this out. And we we proposed it as part of a conference to to run this workshop as part of a conference. And so you have other experienced designers and makers and anybody else who wants to join in to see how they interpret it. But I just it's just from the point of view of. Um being on, uh, working on a project through, um, it's called redistributed manufacturing, and we undertook a similar uh, uh, event where we were not allowed to speak to each other. And uh, after a, a certain length of time, we, we actually just kind of got a, a bit bored, and then we actually started to be a bit sort of more anarchic, and then started to destroy the stuff that we started to make. And it's that sort of, those sort of interesting elements that started to creep in to into that kind of process of making. I'm interested in the practicalities of it, how you set the brief, the rules and the pairings and whether you knew before you came to the session what you were going to be doing, so if you had preconceived ideas um, or whether it was completely open to chance. Well, the idea, I suppose, came from the fact we were, you know, we'd exhibited and it was more that as a group we started to be, it, it was the stuff before the exhibition that we were, we were really interested in. So uh, there were three of us, myself, Tom and Matthew, who's not here tonight, actually. Yeah, Jenny's Matthew tonight. Um, yeah. um, and we started to talk about how we could experience that, articulate that. And it came also from... from um, an inter a personal interest that I've got in my, in my own research. So we devised that, but we were really clear not to tell the rest of the group what that would be. So everybody was coming to that session cold, if you like, mm. and we purposely didn't talk about it between ourselves, what our approaches would be. And we did... Um, we did pair people yeah. uh, intentionally so that we were all with people that ha hadn't had access to, to the brief beforehand. Yeah, so it really was coming to it cold and, yeah, and fresh. Nice yeah, I think yeah. we also we paired it, it paired off so that we weren't working together, but also we made pairings of people who hadn't really worked together previously mm. as well, so to see how they collaborated together. So that was the other element to it. Shall I ask you a quick question? I've got a microphone already. Oh, okay. I brought so one with me. He's, he's pushing <laughs> in. Okay, so Kieran and then these two guys at the front. Yeah. Um, you talk about failure, which is super interesting in terms of making. Um, 
where does success come into this as a project and how and do we reference success in terms of making and especially I guess in the student environment and I know I'm part of the group but it's just kind of provoking yeah kind of for me the success actually is if uh, students find this of use uh, in the development of their own practice. I think increasingly students come to a degree without having done a foundation course or without, you know, and, and the experience at school, I think, of making is very different to what, what they would experience on a degree course. So for me, that sense of success is rooted in developing a, 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 a pedagogical model yeah. That, that has real impact. And I'm also really interested in, the, the, again, the longevity of that and where it might start to impact further down the line. Can we take this into schools? Can we take this to younger groups of students? Can we, can we expand that audience? Because th I think, it, you know, we live in a world where we don't do the touchy-feely bit, actually, and the heavy breathing over materials very often. And, and I think that's, that's the success, that's the value. workshops and it's it's the access to the interviews and the and the uh, record you know skilled makers talking about practice that that seems to ha to me to, to have real something there and, that's and of value and to take it a bit further because that's about the idea of the process of the group i mean i'm also interested in the idea of success of the object as well i mean yeah. institutionally is one thing and externally yeah. how do we measure that success and it, I have my answers, I guess, but in terms of the group, I guess that's something quite interesting mm. to put out there as well, because you've got objects in the front and the success in laughter in oh. terms of when we're seeing people dance with a wiggly thing on their head, head that's a measure. Yeah. And I'm interested in that idea as well in terms of the object, not just the approach to um, the research, research group. And I think that's Uh, hello, yeah. Um, I mean, this question is coming uh, very much from the point of someone working within education, but also as a maker themselves. Um, I believe very much in the idea of uh, learning through play, experimentation, but do you feel with current agendas set down by government, employability, that these elements of failure and how a student can actually take a chance to be able to fail, do you feel that there's greater restraints on that or being able to learn from that as an actual activity. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Well, we're in the space for experimentation. And as you made a point about the fewer students going through the foundation route, mm. um, where is that space for experimentation provided within the students? I mean, I, I see a lot of that with the, the value of outcomes, but what the student values as an outcome can be very different to what I would ascertain that could be. And this sense of play and letting go of that fear of things going wrong isn't natural. And Which is really hard when you've brought into a, a system where you take a feeling and you want to isn't it? Yeah. yeah, but I think we can also we can position the importance of that and how that is a fantastic learning tool, that failure. If you're, if you're taking those risks, if you're experimenting creatively and it fails, what you learn from that is infinitely more important, I think, in many ways, than what is a success. Yeah, I think you've almost answered the question I was going to ask in that um, 
now we're talk, starting to talk more about dissemination and how you can kind of maximize um, the benefits in terms of benefits for you, but also so other people can learn, learn from what you've been doing, because I think this is really valuable and really exciting and entertaining and, and offers great insight into the creative process mm. in an authentic way. But I'm just wondering what ideas you've got about how you can maximize that, both for your own benefit, but also so, I don't know, maybe having some of these workshops online in a sort of open source environment so people can see what you've done and maybe build on that and develop their own ideas for workshops and things. That's a really great idea, mm. thank you. Yeah. yeah, it is. And I think that's something we haven't quite got to. You know, we've got, we've got to here and we've mm. started to think about, okay, what might the next workshop or event be? But we perhaps haven't thought about that yet enough. Just so using the social media and things like yeah, that sort yeah, of yeah. to spread yeah. the word about what you're doing and demonstrating that, but then that becoming a, almost, you could imagine, a network of people like yourselves with similar passions, yeah. Yeah. similar ideas, could take things further and then you could learn, you know, they could exactly. bat that back to you and it could become a really nice sort of international network. Oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're still, we're, we're, this is quite new as well to us, so we're still in that period of reflection as well, so I, I suppose we haven't really yeah. considered the dissemination too much at this stage, because mm. I don't know if we feel it's going in the right direction, and that's why I think, as a group, if we can expand it out and do this with other people, people outside of the group, uh, as we did with the MA students as well, and start to observe how they react to it, I think that will really drive dissemination and drive forward the, the way of the way that we're going to research around this. Yeah. I mean, I feel, you know, happy and confident in my own practice, which I kind of see as running parallel to this. I don't have any um, ego, I suppose, about the fact that these are just made out of disposable, you know, they don't really have a value in terms of monetary value or even the time that was spent making them. It is, it, for me, it's the ideas and the... Sh the sharing of that knowledge. So I, th I think your comment is really um, interesting to, for me to link with that. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, Alex. Alex was next. I think. Go on then. <laughs> statement I suppose than the question in as much as I think being part of some of these workshops a lot of it is down to trust yes. and I think that's, yes. that's in a way why what people are saying is, is difficult because actually you do need to be in an environment where you trust and there isn't judgment and I think that's possibly why it's difficult for the students because there's a mm -hmm. sense of an outcome that has to be evaluated in some way whereas I think for all of us because it's slightly outside our normal practice and there's a sense it gets kind of thrown away at the end and there's no although the work has been exhibited, it's, it's outside of all of our original arenas. So there's, there's a sense that we've kind of given that, given that kind of responsibility over to something else. And it's, yeah. it makes, I think it makes uh, for an interesting process, which I think is, can be very different if you're in an environment where you don't have that trust and that confidence. Yeah. I mean, we're sort of two, two years in. Yeah. Two years in, and I think it's taken 
that amount of time mm. for us to be able to do that workshop um, and to show it to people and to well. show it yeah. to people because yeah. yeah. it's yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. and we, 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 we weren't sure what reaction we would get or what views the audience would have but I think if there is criticism though it, it, it kind of we can, we can almost step away from that and say well actually it's it's, it's something else. It's something separate from what we do yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis. So it has it. You c it's judged in a different kind of criteria by different criteria. Mm. Okay. I think we're done. Yeah. All right. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you.